Romans 11, verses 25, the Apostle Paul begins to write, he says, Let, lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be aware of this mystery, brothers. Partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel would be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards to election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have been disobedient in order that they may be shown mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments. And how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Who has given to, a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we ask now that you would speak to us through your word, that you would show us once again the goodness of Christ. And in showing this, that you would strengthen the faith of those who are yours, those who know you as their Savior and their King. And Father, I pray also for those who may know you not, that you would open their hearts to your truth, and show them their need to come before you in faith and repentance and rest fully on Christ as their Savior. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So no doubt all of us have experienced plans that we have made which change, right? Maybe we planned a picnic at the park, but the weather had different ideas and it didn't cooperate. Or maybe we planned to take a trip, a vacation somewhere, but life circumstances prevented us from being able to travel. And who among us would look at our lives and how we kind of planned them out in our head and would say, yeah, they went exactly as I planned. Because things change. Time moves on, plans come to naught. And circumstances dictate a different path. Well, with God's plans, as we see in the scriptures, those plans do not change. What God has purposed and determined always comes to pass exactly as he planned it. Human failure and unfaithfulness do not change or impact anyway what God has determined and purposed to do in this world that he has created. But for many of us, even those of us who profess to be Christians, that truth that God's plans do not change often creates a dilemma in our minds. I mean, how are we to make sense then of this world 
if things don't always go in the way we think they should be going according to God's word. I mean, after all, shouldn't things be getting better? Why is there still struggle and unbelief and turmoil and chaos and evil? How is that all woven into God's perfect uh, plan that he has made? It sure feels like the world is changing and that things are not going according to God's plan. Well, Paul, of course, as we have seen, has been answering that question, going all the way back to the beginning of Romans chapter 9, when he said, has God's words failed? No, God's word has not failed. He has been faithful to fulfill it. And of course, that question is spurred from the reality that ethnic Israel, God's old covenant people, have in majority rejected the Lord Jesus Christ. They are hardened in their unbelief. And now, the Gentile nations of the world have responded overwhelmingly to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this seems different than the way those early promises were worded. Of course, they are not, as we have seen time and again. And God's people have spread, his church has spread from the Middle East to Asia and Africa and Europe and to the Americas to the furthest corners of the world. But what about those promises that he made to Israel as a people, an ethnic national people, to deliver them from their sins? Has God's redemptive plans changed? Well, they haven't. Because as we've seen across Romans 9, 10, and 11, God is absolutely sovereign. And not all that are Israel or part of Israel um, are part, or, or not all that are part of national Israel are part of spiritual Israel, but those whose faith rests in Christ Jesus are heirs of God's covenant. And so what we learn here as we conclude this doctrinal section of Paul's great letter to the Roman church, what we learn is the great end of God's plan. His redemptive plan for the whole world, both Jew and Gentile, the, the end of all history, the end of what God is doing and why he is doing it and how we as his people, the church, fit into that great plan he has made. And what we find as we explore these wonderful verses of God's holy and inspired word is that the end of God's redemptive plan is only the beginning of his blessing for his people, both Jew and Gentile. You see, we might think 2,000 years into, into uh, the history of the church and you know, only several thousand more since the, the old covenant that we are at the end of that story. And certainly we are living in what the Bible calls the eschaton, the end, but it's only the end of this age. It's not the end of the story. We're at the beginning because the best part is yet to come. And that is what the Lord shows us here. He doesn't want us to be ignorant of his plan. That is the first thing we learn. God does not want you to be ignorant of his plan for this world. So Paul begins there in verse 25, speaking to the Gentiles. He says, lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. 
Paul is speaking to Gentile believers who may question why God promises to Israel that he would save them and make them a great nation, and yet they have fallen into unbelief. And he says, I don't want you to be unaware. I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery. Now, when we hear that word mystery, we usually understand it as something that we do not know, right? Uh, a case that needs solving, a mystery story. But when the Bible speaks of mystery, it means something different. In fact, we get a, a veritable definition of mystery in the Bible at the end of Paul's letter to the Romans, where in Romans 16, Paul says, Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. So what words do you hear there? Well, you hear disclosure, you hear revelation, you hear a secret once hidden but is now made known. That is what the Bible means when it speaks of mystery. It is something that was once hidden, something that was once unknown, but now you can see it, you can understand it, you can believe it, you can know that it is true. So mystery is not some hidden secret, but is what God has made known to you. It, a mystery in the Bible is, is truth about God and his plans revealed so that we might understand what he is doing in the world, what he is doing in your life right now. Paul wants his readers to understand this mystery of what God is doing so that they are not ignorant, he says, or unaware of how God is currently at work in the world and what the final outcome will be. And he wants us to know this mystery because ignorance leads us to arrogance. Ignorance leads us to arrogance, or to put it more specifically, ignorance of God, of his mystery, of his plan, will lead us to arrogance towards God. And that's the problem that Paul is trying to address with these Gentile believers there in Rome by announcing to them this mystery, this revelation of God. He says, lest you are wise in your own eyes, I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery. That little phrase, wise in your own eyes, is a practical definition of arrogance towards God. It's the assumption that, hey, we have it all figured out. It's the problem of pride that we considered last week in the, the previous verses in Romans 11. It's being tempted to think that, that Israel, uh, the natural branches, were broken off the root of God's covenant and we Gentiles grafted in because that was, uh, we were somehow more righteous or de deserving of God's grace. We somehow earned this, and Israel lost it. And so God brought us in because we were better than they. That's being wise in one's own eyes, thinking that they have figured out what God is doing, even with Israel's unbelief and the grafting in of the Gentiles into his covenant promises of the gospel. 
And the reality is, as humans, we like to write our own theology of who God is and why he does what he does. You see, God's wisdom is thinking God's thoughts after him. It's to understand him as he has revealed himself to us in his word. But human wisdom takes what it sees in this world and it arranges that knowledge in such a way that we humans want to understand it. And that's what it means to be wise in one's own eyes. We like to think that we know the way the world works and why things are going the way they do and that we as humans can ultimately dictate the end of all things. We try to make sense of what we see and what is happening based on our own limited understanding of things and we remain ignorant then of what God has sufficiently revealed to us. We as humans have suppressed the knowledge of God as we see back in Romans 1, his control over this world and our place in it as his creation. We generate explanations for the world that correspond with how we want to perceive the world so as to live and to think and to move and to have our being as we want it ordered. And virtually every system of human thought follows that pattern. In Plato, he saw the world as a shadow realm that only vaguely depicted truth. So we as humans find truth, beauty, and goodness through our own philosophical investigation. And our salvation is ultimately our own thoughts about this world. Marx saw the world, of course, as a system of the oppressed and oppressors, and that salvation only comes when the oppressed throw off their oppressors. And Nietzsche interpreted the world as one where there are no absolute values. Therefore, we can create our own value, our own identity, determine our own morality through our own self-realization. You see, every time as, as humans we choose to remain ignorant of God and his ways, it leads us to arrogance towards God. But God doesn't want us to be arrogant towards him. And so he doesn't want us to be ignorant of what he is doing, of his plan. And he reveals the mystery of his redemption to the world through Christ Jesus. Paul shows us that this mystery that we are to know is the saving of a people for God's name. The saving of a people for God's name. God does not leave all his creation to wander about in this dangerous, deadly demise of their own willful ignorant making. Rather, he chooses to save some from both the Jews and the Gentiles. And so Paul says that regarding this mystery, a partial, a partial, not a complete, a partial hardening of Israel has occurred. We already discussed that at length the past couple of weeks, so I won't belabor it in detail again. But as we know, ethnic Israel in mass for the large part, has rejected Jesus as their Messiah. They were the natural olive branches broken off from the root of God's covenant, and they remained outside of it. But this hardening, as Paul says, is partial. It is not total. God preserved a remnant of Israel by his grace, though the majority remains in unbelief. 
But he also says this hardening is temporary. It is not final. It will come to an end. Paul says it will end when the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Then all Israel will be saved. Well, what does he mean by that? Well, he doesn't mean, obviously, that every uh, non-Jewish person will be a follower of Christ. We know that is not true. But what he is talking about is the final salvation of all those from all the nations of the world whom God has determined to save. In fact, that verb that he uses, the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, is used throughout the New Testament to describe those who come into God's kingdom through the gospel. So the fullness of the Gentiles is the complete number of God's elect of all the non-Jewish peoples of the world who by his grace are made citizens of his kingdom. And Paul says, after that, all Israel will be saved. What does he mean by all Israel being saved? Well, he obviously doesn't mean every single Israelite from all time. We know that's not true. We see that in the scriptures, that many remained in unbelief, and they suffered the penalty of that unbelief. Nor does Paul mean all those who exist on earth at that time when the fullness of Gentiles has come in. Otherwise, Paul's lament that he expressed over Israel's fallenness earlier in Romans wouldn't make any sense at all. Remember, Paul said, I want to, I, if I could, I would be cursed, cut off from Christ for, my sake, uh, for the sake of my brothers, his fellow Jews. Furthermore, we see that Israel's stumbling and unbelief and apostasy were not universal. It didn't include all of them. There was always a believing remnant. Not all the branches were broken off from the covenant root. So when all Israel is saved, it is not universal. Some will continue in unbelief. But what Paul is describing here is a reversal of the current situation. While there is a believing remnant now and the mass remain in unbelief, at some future point, according to God's plan, there will be, once again, a believing mass of the Jewish people, though some will continue to reject the gospel. Another detail to notice regarding the salvation of Israel is that it is spiritual, just as it is with us, with the Gentile peoples of the earth. This salvation isn't to establish a geopolitical state of Israel. And the nation state of Israel that does exist today is not the fulfillment of what Paul is describing here, nor will it ever be. There is one kingdom of God, one people of God, a holy nation that is called in the Bible the Israel of God or spiritual Israel. And spiritual Israel is all the people of God, both Jews and Gentiles, who have come in faith to Christ. So what is being described here then in Romans 11 is the inclusion of the believing multitude of Jews added to that spiritual Israel with the Gentiles. And Paul quotes two Old Testament verses in uh, two Old Testament passages in verses 26 and 27 to show us that the salvation here is the forgiveness of sins, not the formation of some empire on this earth. 
Both Isaiah and Jeremiah bear witness to the reality that salvation is redemption from sin. Christ, the deliverer, he says, will banish ungodliness and he will take away his people's sins forever. And so to summarize then, what is this mystery of which we ought not to be ignorant? It is that God will fully save all his people, his elect, from every corner of the earth, both Jew and Gentile. God does not want you to be ignorant of his plan. He wants you to know it, to see it, to rejoice in it. And that is what he is currently doing, even as we sit here worshiping the Lord today in Ann Arbor, Michigan. We are part of this kingdom, this mystery, as God works out his plan in this world. The second thing we see regarding God's plan is that he desires you to taste the mercy of his plan. So he writes, Paul, again, continuing verse 28, as regards to the gospel, they, being Israel, are enemies for your sake, but as regards to election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers, for the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. So what is Paul talking about here? Because at first glance, it sure seems a bit confusing. He says that ethnic Israel is both God's enemies and his beloved. I mean, how can that be? It seems like a paradox. They are enemies of God because they have rejected God's deliverer, Jesus Christ. That was their trespass, their stumbling. But he says they are God's beloved because of his unchanging election or choice of them as an ethnic people or nation. Now, it's really helpful to understand that when Paul talks about election here, he isn't talking about it as he did back in Romans 9. He's not talking about individual people to whom God shows mercy and some he hardens. He's talking about the election of Israel as a people, a national people, through whom he would pour out his blessings of the covenant of grace upon the world. And we get that from that little phrase, for the sake of their forefathers. That's what makes this clear. He has not rescinded in any part the covenant he has made. Now, he has expanded that covenant to include more than just ethnic Israel, as we understand, to include people from all over the world. But he has not utterly removed Israel as a nation, as a people group, from the picture. So God's gifts and his calling are irrevocable. He doesn't regret them in any way so as to remove them. His plan has not changed. The gifts that Paul speaks are a reference to all those privileges and prerogatives that God gave to Israel as are listed back in Romans 9, verses 4 through 5. And the point, again, there is to emphasize the faithfulness of God. Not the faithfulness of Israel, because they were unfaithful, but the faithfulness of God. That's what dominates Paul's, th Paul's thought here. And it's an important truth to remember as we read the next verses, verses 30 through 32. For just as you, speaking to the Gentiles, were at one time disobedient to God, but have now received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may receive mercy. 
For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. So Paul is summarizing here what we considered last week, that rebounding work of the gospel of grace. So Israel disobeyed the gospel by rejecting Jesus. And through their disobedience, the gospel then rebounds upon the Gentile peoples of the world. And Israel, seeing this, as Paul explains, is stirred to jealousy. They want God's blessing of grace. And so they come back then in faith and repentance to Christ. And so Paul says, through disobedience, their disobedience, you Gentiles receive mercy, but in time, they too might receive mercy. And that is the point here. It is that all need mercy because all are disobedient. God has consigned all or imprisoned all, both Jew and Gentile, in disobedience. That's the truth of Romans 1 uh, through chapter 3, where we see that the law of God in both nature and his word has trapped all humanity in their sin so that none of us can say, I'm not guilty. We all are guilty. We all need mercy. And thus Paul wrote, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's no unrighteous, no, not one. Under the law, every mouth is stopped and the whole earth is held accountable to him. But into that disobedience of all humanity comes the overwhelming, abundant, life-giving mercy of God. You see, mercy only makes sense when there is disobedience to a law. Otherwise, you don't need mercy. But if we have all broken God's law, then we all need his mercy. In fact, it is the severity of our disobedience against God, who is eternal, that enhances the depth of his mercy towards us. Nobody, not Jew or Gentile, deserves that mercy. And yet God, according to his redemptive plan, has always intended to show it. And he extends it sovereignly to those whom he calls to be his people. So looking upon the mystery now revealed, we see across the horizon of history a sunburst of his grace, of his mercy, shining down upon undeserving people. And he desires people from all over the world to taste of that mercy according to his plan. There are a lot of practical takeaways we can get from that truth, but for the sake of time, just consider one with me for a minute. Since God desires people from every part of this world to taste the mercy of his redemptive plan, that means that we who have tasted of that mercy must leave a place for others to taste of it as well. Now, we don't always like to do that. In fact, we often divide the world into the us versus them. But in God's redeeming plan, his intention is to show mercy to people we would never expect to see it. And so we must show it as well. We must preach the gospel equally to all. We must show the love of Christ equally to all. Even those whom we despise, 
We ought to desire and call them to repentance and faith in Christ, our friends and our enemies. So hold out hope till the very last that God can save the hardest of sinners for his kingdom is growing every day. That is God's plan to spread his mercy from shore to shore, from sunrise to sunset. It is a plan in which he desires you to know his mercy and others like you. It is a plan of which he wants you to not be ignorant. So that finally in closing, it, we see in that plan the glory of God. You see, God wants you to worship him, which is the goal of his great plan. Paul records his response to God's mystery, now revealed this plan to redeem a people for his name for both Jews and Gentiles. And he records that in verses 33 through 36. It's an outburst of high praise and wonder at the glory and the power and the majesty of God as he works it in your life. He says, oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God how unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever. Amen. There are two parts to Paul's doxology. First, he praises the incomprehensibility of God. God's riches, his wisdom, his knowledge are so deep that we cannot even see the bottom of them. They stretch from eternity to eternity. Now when we think of God's incomprehensibility, we tend to consider the things about God that we cannot know, that he has not revealed to us. And that is true. He does have a secret counsel, an eternal will that we do not see, that he has not shown us about himself. But the incomprehensibility of God also applies to what God has made known to us. And that is what Paul is talking about here. It is what is compelling Paul to burst forth in doxological praise. The apostle is so overwhelmed by the depth of God's eternal plan that there is this partial hardening of Israel, but he is saving a remnant and all Israel will be saved and he is calling in the fullness of the Gentiles. He is so overwhelmed by the truth of the gospel that he sees God's wisdom and knowledge being far deeper than he can understand. You see, that's why theology isn't dull and boring as we tend to think. It's also not optional to us as God's people. In fact, everybody has a theology of some sort that they articulate about who God is and what he is doing. But when we study who God is, when we look upon his word and seek to know him more, what does it do but drive us to praise at what he has done? at how great he is. God's wisdom speaks of how he arranges and orders all things to accomplish his full purpose. 
God's knowledge is his exhaustive understanding of all things. God's judgment is all that he has ordained and determined to do, every decision he has made. And God's ways are how he deals with the creation that he has made in this world. It is how he executes his plan and his purpose for everything. He has shown us so much of this as Paul has written under the Spirit's inspiration to reveal to us this great plan of salvation that God justifies by faith alone, not by works, that he uses even the horrible things like the stumbling of Israel to bring the gospel to people, that he uses the faith of the Gentiles to save those who have been hardened against him amongst Israel. He makes the vilest of sinners clean. He shows mercy according to his sovereign design. And he hardens in judgment the others according to his sovereign design. And all of that, as Paul reflects on it, is so overwhelming that the only thing he can do is worship God. And that worship, that's the goal of God's plan. That's the end of it all. The great end of redemption. You see, the goal of saving sinners isn't simply to save sinners. It is the very glory of God himself, to be worshipped by his creation as we enjoy his blessings forever. That's the goal. And that's the final focus of Paul's doxology, for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever. Amen. See, God is the creator who made all things for his own glory. All things are from him. He is the origin of all things. And all things are through him. He is the operator of all things. And all things are to him. He is the objective of all things. That's been the purpose and plan since the very beginning of this world that God's glory would be the center of it all and his creation would lift up to him eternal praise for who he is. And that is wonderful news for you and me. And here's why. Because it means that he will be gracious and merciful. You see, as sinners, we do not by nature worship God, do we? No, that is at the very heart of our sinful rebellion against him. We glorify ourselves. We make ourselves to be gods. We worship ourselves. But since God's desire and plan is to be worshipped by his people, it means that he will show grace and mercy and save them and forgive them from every last one of their sins and make them his own so that they can worship and glorify him for all eternity. In other words, God's zeal for his own glory means he will show you mercy. He will show mercy on those who have sinned against him. And if you are united to Jesus through faith alone, it's because God in his mercy brought you into his kingdom according to this plan so that you might worship him forever. But God doesn't want you to be ignorant of his plan, so he's revealed to you the mystery of it through his word. And God desires you to know the mercy of his plan, so he sent Christ to live, suffer, die, and, and rise in the place of undeserving sinners so that we might know his mercy. And all of that is so that we would worship God according to his plan.
And that, brothers and sisters, that is the gospel. That is the great plan of God from all creation. That is your righteousness if you by faith rest upon Jesus as your redeemer. And it is a plan that does not fail. It is being written now as we gather to worship. And it continues to be written until that day Christ returns. And then we'll begin the first chapter in that great eternal story of praise. When sin and death and hate and sorrow will be no more. So then, grow in the knowledge of God's plan that he has revealed to you. Hold out the mercy of God's plan as he has shown it to you and worship him who is the author and the orchestrator and the object of that plan. And we will say with Paul, to him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Father in heaven, we thank you again for your word, for it is truth. We ask now that you would seal this in our hearts, that you have written us in this great plan, that you have made Christ Church Ann Arbor and every person here who knows you to be your own, so that you might accomplish the end of all things, to bring about your people for your glory. Father, encourage us daily as we live according to this truth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.